I want to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we mentioned last week that we are taking a break from our series in 1 Corinthians. I hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, we will be picking back up later on in the year as we finish out the book of 1 Corinthians, that great letter. Uh, but we have a little bit of time in between there. And so we just have a couple messages standalone leading up to Easter Sunday morning. And then we have a couple short series that are kind of standalone series uh, that we'll be uh, jumping into and then back to 1 Corinthians. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter chapter 20 this morning. As we begin, let me ask you a question. What comes to your mind or who comes to your mind when I say the greatest? The greatest. It's, it's a common uh, kind of question today when people talk about the greatest or they refer to the goat, which is the greatest of all time. And depending on what area we're talking about, many names of individuals or people might come to mind. If we talking, we're talking about music and say, who is the greatest singer? Names like Whitney Houston or Celine Dion or Adele or Frank Sinatra might come to mind when we talk about the greatest singers. When we talk about the greatest bands, maybe the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Nickelback. <laughs> when we talk about baseball players... Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Joe DiMaggio, maybe. Boxers, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Mike Tyson, Rocky Marciano. We talk about basketball players, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan. <laughs> we talk about soccer players, Ronaldo, Messi, Pele. When we think about politicians or presidents, not going there. Because no one would be happy, and I would have all kinds of emails, and people wanting to meet with me to explain that the pulpit's not for politics, etc. So I'm not even going to touch on politicians. But when we think about greatness, or the greatest, we think of someone with great talents or skills, great abilities. We think of superior accomplishments Someone worthy of recognition and honor because of the great skills and abilities they possess. We think of fame and we think of fortune. That's what comes to our mind when we think about greatness. Well, this morning I want to look at a passage of scripture that challenges that human thinking of greatness with what I think we can call a heavenly perspective on true greatness. And Jesus is going to do what he so often did during his time in his earthly ministry as he was teaching and proclaiming about the kingdom of heaven. He would share something that was completely counter-cultural with his disciples. He would share with them principles and teaching that those that were listening and hearing what he had to say would have thought as they heard it, what is this guy talking about? We read in many different instances where Jesus would teach and the way it's described as he taught with authority that they had never heard or seen from the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus would teach with certainty because he is the author of truth. And here Jesus is going to teach something that is countercultural for the disciples back in their day and it's completely countercultural in our day as well as we think about true greatness. Follow along with me in Matthew chapter 20. Verses 17 to 28. You can follow along in the Pew Bible. It's page 825 or in your copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 20, beginning verse 17. 
And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This morning, I want to look again at this passage of Scripture that may be very familiar to many of you, and maybe for some it's the first time you've read or heard this, where Jesus addresses the reality of true greatness and what that takes or what that is represented by. Now, we're going to focus this morning on verses 25 to 28. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But I wanted to read the context. I wanted to start in verse 17 because I wanted to set the context for what Jesus is going to teach the disciples here. And I think it's very valuable and important to understand what was happening during this part of Jesus' earthly ministry. Again, verses 17 to 19, Jesus is going to make his way up to Jerusalem. This would be his final journey to Jerusalem. Next week, leading up to Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry where Jesus is going to be celebrated as this king, as the king that was making his way into Jerusalem. And we know what would follow that. And Jesus tells the disciples here, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and here's what's going to happen. The son of man will be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and scribes. They'll condemn him to death. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is setting out this truth, this reality, that this is his final journey to Jerusalem, and he's telling his disciples, those that are following him, those that loved him, those that have observed him and have heard his teaching and watched his miracles, this is what's going to take place. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests. And there's going to be just a ridiculous trial that's going to take place. And, and Jesus is going to be condemned, not for anything evil that he did, but because of lies and because of falsehoods. Jesus is going to be condemned. And he says he's going to be mocked and he's going to be spit on. He's going to be beaten and he's going to be condemned to be crucified. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be buried and he's going to raise again the third day. And Jesus is laying this out 
for his disciples as he approaches his final journey to Jerusalem. Which, by the way, let me encourage you, we will be talking about the cross, about the sacrifice of Christ on Good Friday. It's a time that we will remember that sacrifice. It's a time that we will participate together in the Lord's table in communion, remembering what Christ has done And that because of his death, because of his shed blood, we who were condemned by God because of our sin can have life and forgiveness. But this is what Jesus is explaining to them. It's important to understand this contextually because he's wanting them to understand the reality of what is going to happen and what's going to take place. Because the Jews in particular were still looking for their Messiah to come and set up his kingdom on earth. They were looking for a deliverer. They were looking for the king that would deliver them from Roman rule and the oppression that they were under. And even next week, as we'll see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, they were hailing him, hailing him as their king. They were wanting to put him in a position of authority right then and there. And Jesus is relaying to his disciples the reality that that's not what's going to happen right now. That his life is going to be taken from him. It's not going to be taken from him because of force on their part. It's going to be offered by him because he's going to lay it down willingly. Jesus is laying this out for his disciples. And it's it's important to understand that because in just a matter of, of moments, in a matter of days, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem and people are going to be hailing him as king. They're going to be hailing him as the great one that has come, as the greatest. Prior to that ever taking place, Jesus is wanting them to understand the reality of what true greatness is and what true greatness does. And he's setting the tone here. It's in verses 17 to 19. I feel it's so important to understand that, okay, as we set this context to what Jesus is about to deliver to them. Now, in verse 20 through 24, we see a mother's request. This again, just setting the context here. Setting the context for our understanding of greatness is a mother's request in verses 20 to 24. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. This is this mother's request. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, followed Jesus and knew Jesus and watched Jesus. And the other disciples are there, the twelve are there. And and their mom, James and John's mom, comes to Jesus and she kneels at Jesus' feet and she's like, I have a request for you. It's a mother's request. Her request is that Jesus would exalt her sons to a position of greatness. I want you to think about this. Think about this for a minute. I mean, this tells me moms have, have not changed, right? They just have not changed. We all want, parents, we all want our children to have the best, uh, when my girls were very young, I remember going to their first softball games that they would be playing. And I'm talking very young. And as the game was going on, I'm watching the game. And the only thing I'm concerned about is like, hey, I hope they don't get like injured and start screaming on the field. And I'm thinking, I hope that they just have a good time here. I mean, they were, you're talking, you know, five years old out there playing softball. Um, you know, one of my daughters more concerned about chasing the butterfly out in the field than she is about the ground ball that's coming her way. I mean, it's that age. But as I'm sitting there and I'm watching and you can listen to parents talk and you can hear parents talk about how their, their kids should be playing this because they're better at this and they should be playing this because they know how to hit better and they keep their eye on the button. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like they're five years old. 
But there's always this thought in the minds of, of parents, right? And in particular moms, which is great that our kids deserve the best and, and they are the best at what they do. And, and it's no different here. Back in Jesus' day, the, the sons of Zebedee, their mom, James and John's mom, looks at her two sons and she wants greatness for them. She wants what's best for them. And so she sits at the feet of Jesus and says, here's my request, Lord. My request is that you would make them great. Let them sit at your right hand and at your left in your kingdom. Give them positions of authority. Give them positions of power. Give them positions of greatness. This is what she's asking of Jesus. Jesus is going to respond, and again, this is a message in and of itself that we're not going to get in all the detail here of verses 20 to 24, but Jesus responds to her and says, listen, you really don't know what you're asking me. You're not processing exactly what you're asking me. And this is not mine to give, but my father's to give, and, and they will partake in what I'm partaking of, but I can't I can't put them at my right hand and at my left hand. That's not mine to give. And, and to summarize this, um, verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were angry. They were angry. And so it wasn't just mom that was asking this, but the two that were there, I'm sure they, they wanted this as well because Jesus is even going to address them when he, when he says, you do not know what you're asking. And it says, they said to him, so you know, James and John are, are part of this. And the other 10 are, are furious with them. They're indignant at the two brothers because they desired this position of greatness and they would have the gall to go to Jesus through their mom and ask Jesus to put them in these positions of, of exalted authority and positions of leadership and greatness. But this is this mother's request. And so in the context of all this, don't miss this, Jesus tells them who, by the way, is the greatest, Jesus, there's no one greater than him. He explains to them what's going to take place in his life soon, that he's going to offer his life upon the cross, that he's going to allow himself to be mocked and spitten, unbeaten, bruised, crucified. He's going to allow all these things to take place only to rise again the third day, that Jesus is going to go to the cross. And he tells them this. And in that context, in that immediate context, two of the disciples, what they care about is positions of greatness in his kingdom. They ask to be exalted there. And Jesus says, hold on, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. And the other 10 are like, man, we're, they're angry. They're angry at James and John. And then Jesus transitions into some very important teaching about true greatness, which is where we want to spend the remainder of our time in verses 25 to 28. Look again with me. But Jesus called them to him and said, this is in the context of all that we've just talked about and all that we've just covered he called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Jesus first is going to help them to understand in this lesson on true greatness that the pathway to true greatness is not the one that is most traveled. The pathway to true greatness is not the one that is most traveled. Jesus sets for them an example in their culture, in their society, in their understanding of the ones that are great. And he says, you know 
that the rulers of the Gentiles, those that have positions of quote-unquote greatness, those that have positions of, of authority, those that have positions that are revered and that are sought after and that are really looked at and paid homage to, he says that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Jesus begins this lesson on true greatness by helping the disciples to realize true greatness isn't what you've always thought it is. You know how relevant that is for you and I today? Because we live in a culture and a society where true greatness is found in what we've described earlier. Fortune and fame. Amazing abilities and talents. People who can do things in a talented way or in an exceptional way that would cause people to just look at them in awe and make themselves great. That's what our culture, society says is true greatness. And that's what they would have understood to be true greatness. And Jesus makes something very important. He says, it should not be so among you. That if you and I as followers of Christ, as those that fear God, want to truly be great in the eyes of God, it is not going to look like the path that the world goes down. It's going to be something completely different. And he's wanting them to understand this, and it's so valuable and relevant for them because it's in the context of two of them and their mother asking that they would be made great in the way that the world sees greatness. You see that? Jesus says, this should not be so among you. The pathway to true greatness is not the one that is most traveled. This should not be true of you. You have had examples your whole life of what quote unquote greatness is, but I'm telling you something entirely different. Jesus did this quite a bit during his earthly ministry, didn't he? This is nothing new for Jesus. How many times Jesus said in the Gospels that's recorded for us and how many times that's not even recorded when Jesus would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So many times Jesus would make that statement, you've heard it said to love your neighbor or love those that love you, but I say to you, love your enemies. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, if someone strikes you on your cheek, turn to them the other also. There's this understanding that Jesus proclaimed during his earthly ministry that the standard of the world and the pathway of the world is not the standard and pathway that God has. And the same is true when it comes to true greatness. True greatness and the pathway to true greatness is not the one most traveled. I remember one of the first poems that I had to memorize in school was The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. How many of you have ever had to memorize that poem? Just curious. A lot of you had to memorize that poem. And I still remember parts of that poem to this day. And I was very young when I had to memorize it. But this is the poem. Robert Frost writes this poem called The Road Not Taken. It says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, 
somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The only thing I remembered about that poem was how the last line seemed to completely not fit with the way it ended, and that has made all the difference. But as I look back on that poem as an adult and understand what Robert Frost said in this poem, as he was making a point that oftentimes the tendency is to go the safe route or the route that everybody else is traveling because that's what's comfortable and that's where most people go. But to go the the road less traveled by could make a huge difference. Going where people do not want to go or haven't gone. This is what Jesus is telling the disciples here. He's telling them that the pathway to true greatness in the sight of God is not the pathway that most people choose. And it's not the pathway that they, at that point in their life, would have been taught to to achieve true greatness. And he says that you know what the example you have received has been. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Now here's a very important question. I believe at this point in the message we have to stop and ask ourselves. Is it the desire of your heart, is it the desire of my heart to have greatness, true greatness in the eyes of men or to have true greatness in the eyes of God? And how you answer that question this morning will determine the pathway that you take, will determine the priorities that you make in your life. It will determine who it is that you value most, what it is that you value most, Greatness, true greatness in the eyes of men or greatness, true greatness in the eyes of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is writing to the elders and he says to the elders of the church, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter was calling on the leaders, the elders of the early church, that they would shepherd the church and show greatness in leadership in the church, not by domineering over those under their care, but by serving those under their care, by showing authentic care for those that they were responsible for and not in a superficial domineering way as those that were leaders in the church. In Philippians chapter 2, which we'll look at in a few moments, Paul talks about the mind of Christ that as believers, we are to let the mind that was in Christ be also in us, a mind of service, a mind of selflessness, a mind that seeks the needs and interests and desires of others even before our own. True greatness and the pathway to true greatness is not the one that we have always been the most familiar with. It is not the one that is the most traveled by. And don't miss the word of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 20 and in verse 25 he says you know dot 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 but it should not be true among you counter cultural to what they were used to and what they had been taught true greatness and the pathway to true greatness is not the one most traveled secondly the pathway to true greatness involves serving not being served think of this for a moment Just that statement in the culture in which we live would be considered completely ridiculous. 
True greatness involves serving and not being served. Anyone that our culture deems to be great, they have people who serve them. Think of that. If you ever see someone that's considered to be a celebrity, that's considered to be someone who is great, they have an entourage of people that are with them and they're there to serve the celebrity. They're there to protect them and to provide for them and to give them what they want and direct them where they need to go and keep fans away from them. There's people that are serving them. Why? Because they are great. Their name is known. People desire to be like them and see them and talk with them. They desire to to be with them because they're great in the eyes of the world. But this statement that the pathway to true greatness involves serving, not being served, completely countercultural. Look at what Jesus said, again, continuing in verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. Say it with me. Servant. He says, this must not be true among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus relays the pathway to true greatness involves not being served, but serving. And here's what I love about Jesus. And you already know this, that Jesus models this, doesn't he? This is the thing I love about Jesus is he never calls us to do something He never commands us to do something that we would think, Jesus, why would anybody do that? That Jesus himself is not first doing. Jesus has just told his disciples what's going to happen in his life. He is going to lay down his life. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be spit on. He's going to have a trial that's just a mockery of him. A murderer is going to be released instead of Jesus. And he tells them all this. He lays it all out for them. They're going to Jerusalem. And this is what's going to take place in his life. And in that context, Jesus says, listen, if you want to be great, you don't be like the world and take the pathway of the world. If you want to be great, you become a servant. You become a slave. You serve others. By the way, guys, I'm modeling this for you right now. Do you see this? This is true greatness. This is what Jesus is modeling for them. This is what Jesus is showing them here. That involves serving and not being served. Oh, that we as the body of Christ and as children of God would quit thinking so highly of ourselves but that we would remember who it is that we are, who it is that we belong to, and what Christ has done for us. We can be so guilty so often as followers of Christ as to thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. All of us are guilty of that. We can be guilty of looking down our noses at those that are lost, those that do not know Christ, looking down our noses at those that are just completely completely engulfed in their sin because it is their master and think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Might we not forget who we were apart from Christ? Might we not forget that we too once lived in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the others, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Might we not forget this? Might we not forget that but for the servant, Jesus Christ, but for the Son of God laying down his life for us, we would be the chief and worst of sinners? 
might we not think more highly than we ought to of ourselves and understand that the true pathway to true greatness in the sight of God is not in being served, but in serving others. This is what Jesus modeled for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That passage is known as the kenosis of Christ. That's the emptying of himself. Jesus emptied himself. And in that passage, the Apostle Paul says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says this, Do nothing. Nothing. What does nothing mean? It means nothing. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was yours in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says here. He says that as a believer in Christ, there is absolutely nothing that we should be doing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's no action that we should be taking as a follower of Christ that seeks to make ourselves the greatest in people's eyes or people's minds. There's no actions or words or desires that should be prevalent in our hearts as followers of Jesus that should cause us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That's not who we are in Christ. That's not what we've been called to. But I wonder how many of us, our day starts, carries through and ends with the thought in our mind, how can I make much of myself rather than much of Christ? How can I serve myself rather than how can I serve Christ? How can I make my name great rather than how can I make the name of Christ great amongst those that I'm interacting with today? How can I make much of Jesus and not much of myself? And here Jesus is relaying to these disciples and in the context of two of them asking for greatness in his kingdom, if you truly want to be great, you don't follow the pathway of the world. If you truly want to be great, it doesn't begin and end by people paying homage and serving you. It begins and ends by serving others, even as I have modeled for you. This is the pathway to true greatness, serving and not being served. Number three, the pathway to true greatness is most modeled not in the ways of the world, but in the life of Christ. The pathway to true greatness is not most modeled in the ways of the world, but in the life of Christ. Listen, if you are a young person here, when I say young person, I mean 41 and under, okay? If you're a young person here, 41 and under, if you're gonna be 42 in June, 42 in June and under, if you're young, Listen to me, if you're in middle school or high school or college, if you are a young person here today and you're in that pathway and you're thinking about your career, you're thinking about your life, you're thinking about what's next for you, may you take the words of Jesus to heart and understand that the pathway to true greatness in your life in the eyes of God is not found in the career pathway that the world tells you it's found in. That true greatness is found in the life of Christ. So model Christ. Follow Christ. If you are an old person here, again, 42 and above, might you understand today 
that true greatness for you is no different than those that were younger. And if you're like, tell the young people, Bruce, tell them, let me tell you the same thing, that true greatness is not found in your career pathway or in the expressions of the world. It's found in Christ and following Jesus. That's true greatness. And oh, that we as children of God, again, would get off our pedestal in thinking of ourselves more highly than we are because we're not. Might we look at ourselves the way the Apostle Paul did? We are the chief of sinners, but we've been made clean through Jesus. And so can every other person that we interact with through Christ be made clean. True greatness is most modeled not in the ways of the world, but in Christ. And Jesus says this, look what he says. Verse 28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, you need to be a servant of all, a slave to all. But guys, I'm not just telling you to do this without doing it myself. Look at me as your example. Even as the son of man came not to be served, Jesus didn't come to the earth that by the way he created He didn't come to this creation which exists only by his word. He didn't come to live amongst people that are his creation so that they would serve him. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, it says in this passage. This is what Jesus has done. You know what Christ calls his disciples to? You know what he's called us to? That we too would serve even as Jesus served. That's true greatness. That's true greatness. And again, that might not be the case in the eyes of sinful men, yet it is true. It is the case in the eyes of our great God and Savior, Jesus. I was thinking about a way to illustrate this, a way to to kind of put some, some clarity to this, and I thought there's no better illustration of this than Jesus himself in John chapter 13. There's no better illustration of this In John chapter 13, just before Jesus would be arrested, crucified, Isaiah 53 would tell us he would be beaten beyond recognition. Jesus is going to model true greatness to his disciples. It says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who it was that was going to betray him. 
That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus modeled complete greatness as he served his disciples in washing their feet. And he says, you are to do likewise. True greatness and the pathway to true greatness is found and modeled not in the ways of the world, but in the life of Christ. Do you want to be great in the eyes of the Lord? I hope you do as a child of God. Might I encourage you first to seek to live and love as Christ did. For the glory of God, to do the will of the Father, counting your own life as secondary to Christ. Might encourage you, if you want to be great in the eyes of the Lord, to seek to serve others first and not ourselves. Serve others first. And in doing so, follow the example and model of Christ. When was the last time we put others first When was the last time we put the Lord first throughout the entirety of one of our days? Might we model Christ? Do you want to be great in the eyes of the Lord? Might we seek glory to Christ and not glory to self? Who gets the most glory day in and day out in what we do? What motivates us to do what we do? Might we seek glory to Christ and not glory to ourselves? And in doing so, might we be great in the eyes of the Lord? of the Lord as we serve him the way Christ modeled for us. We're going to close with a song this morning that speaks about the love of our Father, our good, good Father who loves and cares for us. Knowing that we have a Father in heaven who loves and cares for us, knowing we have a Father in heaven who has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Might we in return faithfully serve him in the same way that Christ modeled for us?